Uh, welcome to Labor Day weekend. You know, this is, this is always the fun thing. Um, I'm, I'm in some youth pastor groups uh, on Facebook, and uh, one of the things that always comes up on weekends like this is, hey, how many of you get to preach in big church today? <laughs> because it's typical that these are what we call uh, the National Youth Pastor Preaching Sundays. So, uh, but <laughs> welcome. And I figured it would be uh, really sad if we had Labor Day and I didn't talk about anything to do with labor. So I wanted to tell you a story. Um, two years ago, my wife, Janae, and I were expecting our son, Micah, to be born. Now, I want to tell you a little bit, a little bit about the story here. Um, we were at this point where we were eight days past his due date and kind of looking like, okay, so what is, uh, what's going to go on? Nothing was really happening. Nothing was progressing. And we were uh, a little anxious about this going, okay, what do we need to do to, to make this Happen. Well, the doctors had said, why don't we have you come in and, and be induced? Uh, because eight days passed, we're, he's already kind of a large kid, it seems like. So let's just, let's get on this, uh, and, and just get this going. So we scheduled, uh, a time to be induced, and it was working out perfectly for us because at this time we lived in Colby, Kansas. Now, if you've ever been to Colby, it's not a huge city. Uh, it's kind of a small town feel, and everybody knows everybody. Everyone knows when something is going on, and my wife and I were known in the community through youth ministry and her connection with the schools, and so one of the things that we wanted was that this time would be more of an intimate time with just us, just our family, and that only a few people would know that we were going in uh, to be induced just because we didn't want to be overwhelmed with a bunch of people coming after, especially Janae is going, you know what, I don't know what I'm going to feel like after this. I don't know that I really want a bunch of people, especially teenagers, coming in to visit us uh, in the hospital uh, just, you know, as they feel like it. I don't know what's going to go on. And so, we had decided we'll go in in an evening, be induced. Not very many people are going to know just because we want to have this as just a family thing. So we get there and we're going, this is nice. This is going to work. We're excited, but still at the same time, there's the normal anxiousness that goes along with it. And uh, Janae earlier that day, we'd been sitting down for lunch and she started feeling something going on, but it wasn't really that big of a deal and it only really noticed it once. Uh, but they told her, hey, did you know that you're already having contractions? Uh, and she's going, well, no, that's what that is. I didn't realize that it was just indigestion or something. I don't know. Uh, but it, it's, it was this weird kind of feeling. And they said, yeah, you're already I mean, labor has already started. It's just not very strong contractions. But let's go ahead and get you uh, hooked up and going uh, for this so that we can get things moving along here. We're getting excited about it, but if you have ever been to a hospital or been in the hospital, you understand that they uh, have the most flattering clothing for you to wear of all time, these gowns that just, uh, they're gorgeous. <laughs> not really. The front is, is nice and covered. The back is, of course, wide open. And they told Janae, hey, we've got to have you in one of these gowns. So she's getting ready uh, and putting on this gown. And at that moment, someone knocks on the door of our room. The door opens, and it is a woman that we know who works at the hospital, uh, but her daughter has been involved with us in youth, uh, in our youth ministry. And she said, hey, I heard that you guys were here, and my daughter wanted to see you. And she brings her daughter in while Janae is standing there uh, <laughs> in this gown trying to get ready. And it was immediately, Janae goes, oh, can we not? Because uh, it's all she could think to say in this moment. And so now, as they usher this girl back out of the room, Janae's anxiety is spiked beyond just the normal. Now it's hitting this point of, great, now one of our teenagers knows, which means everyone is going to know. Now all these people are going to want to come and visit us. Now this is just, why did that happen? I feel violated. I feel like this, is, this isn't the way it was supposed to be. And I'm sitting in the room going, it's okay, Janae, just, just be calm. It's okay. But on the inside, I'm, I am kind of like, what is happening? What is going on? You know, I'm already this first-time dad thing going, I don't know what to do. But... Uh, we decided, you know what, it'll be okay, we'll make it through this, but we have this extra stress now on top of things, that it's just going to be, things aren't going the way that we planned. Things aren't going the way that we wanted. So we uh, start this process and, and just start going, and 24 hours later, they're going, you know, not much is happening, Janae, not much is going on other than you're just having contractions, and, and not much is really happening other than you're just more and more and more pain is all that's going on. 
So they said, we got to do some things to help. So they started trying some different things. Uh, and after 36 hours of labor, uh, they were at the point where they said, okay, Janae, let's, let's really push. We can do this. We can push. And we also learned at 36 hours of labor something wonderful, that my son Micah inherited from me an extraordinarily large head. So... Um, after going through the fullness of labor and trying to uh, have a natural birth for our son, they realized that there was no way that his head was going to come out. Uh, and so they said, Janae, we have to have an emergency C-section right now because things are, are starting to turn. This was the last words that she wanted to hear. It wasn't that C-sections were bad. It's just not what she desired. It's not what she wanted. She wanted the experience of this natural childbirth. And so I sat there and watched as my wife's heart just broke. Because in her ears, in her eyes, she heard, you failed. That's not what was said, but that's what she felt. And she felt destroyed by this in that moment. And I'm trying to comfort her at the same time as feeling that same heartbreak a little bit for her and myself, but not fully understanding the pain and the struggle that she was going through in the midst of this. They said, well, we've got to take her uh, to go get her ready and we're going to send you over to this other room. So they wheel her off down a hallway and said, you need to go in this door. I walk in this door and it's, I'm, I'm standing in a closet. I don't know exactly what is going on, but they closed the door behind me and said, someone will come in in a minute. And I'm standing in a closet, not sure what to do. Uh, I'm thinking, is this what they do to all of the you know, husbands in this moment? They trap them somewhere so that they can't stop them. I don't know what's going on, but I'm in this closet and a woman comes in and it's a woman from our church there. She works at the hospital and she says, I know you don't want anybody knowing that's not why I'm here. I'm here to give you a granola bar because you haven't eaten uh, and, and to pray for you. And she came in and she prayed for me and I got to have this great time of being comforted while my wife's in the other room freaking out. Um, and, and then she says, here's the gown that you need to put on. Uh, they gave me a medium. Clearly I'm a large, but I squeezed into it. And my problems didn't mean anything in this moment. So I, I go in and I sit down. You know, my arms are barely able to bend because of this, you know, thing. But that's okay. We'll make it work. So I sit down uh, in, in the room. There's Janae. They've got the curtain up. And, and Janae's still really upset. She's nervous. Uh, but they say, okay, we got to start. And they start going, and the problem is, is that if you've ever been in that situation, uh, you understand something. While there's, there's certain ways that they numb you, you still feel things. And so Janae's sitting there going, oh, I can feel stuff's going on. I don't like this. To her, it was, she describes it like this. It felt like someone was taking my insides out, which is quite literally what was kind of going on. And so she could feel this going on, and it was uncomfortable, and she was kind of moving and squirming a little bit. Well, any of you that have been involved in these things understand you, you're not allowed to move when they're inside cutting and working on very delicate things. And, and so they're saying, Janae, you got to hold still. you got to hold still. And she's trying, but now her anxiety is just on full level going. And she's really upset. And she doesn't know uh, how to hold still because she's so uncomfortable. And then all of a sudden, her body goes completely limp. Her arms just hang there, and she becomes very unresponsive. Now, I have no idea what's going on. So my heart starts racing, and then the anesthesiologist looks at me and says, oh, don't worry, I just gave her something to calm her down. Oh, (laughs) wonderful. (laughs) What? (laughs) I found out later he gave her a a pretty hefty dose of ketamine. Um, And and in this moment, what it did (laughs) is it put Janae in a a place where she was uh, basically paralyzed in the moment. And she's just laying there. Her arms are just hanging. And she can't move, but she's trying to mumble something. It took about a minute and a half for me to understand what she was saying. And finally, I heard it. Here's what Janae was saying. I died. Oh my gosh, I died. I'm dead. And she just keeps saying this over and over. Now I'm sitting there going, you're you're not dead. You're You're okay. You're talking, Janae. But she couldn't hear me for another two and a half minutes. Two and a half minutes later, I'm going, Janae, you are fine. You're alive. It's okay. And she goes, you can hear me? And just starts weeping. Now she can't like turn her head or anything. Tears are just flowing down. And because of the intensity of the moment, she's not only still thinking that she might be dead, but she's weeping and she starts feeling sick. So she starts throwing up. Now I'm going, oh, this is a, there's a problem. And the anesthesiologist coming in clutch again, hands me a suction tube. And he says, here, just keep her clean. What are you doing? Like, so I, I grab this and I'm, I'm sucking things up going, you're alive. Oh, gross. You're alive. You're alive. At this same moment, 
the doctor comes around the curtain with this alien that was dipped in motor oil and says, here's your son, and puts him in my arm. So now I'm sucking vomit, saying, you're alive. Oh, hi, Micah. Wow. Janae, do you see? And what's sad about this moment is I have the full memory of it, and Janae doesn't remember any of it course. And and it's sad because that was one of the experiences she wanted was to be there and to be coherent during that time. And she didn't get to be. And so it actually took a few hours for Janae to really get to experience what it was to have our son in the world. Uh, And that was a difficult thing as a painful thing on top of it. Now, what what went on after gets even better. We spent five days in the hospital recovering and getting ready to the point where we could come out and come home. Uh, and so after we've spent these five days in the hospital, we now have about two weeks and two days before we are supposed to move to Mitchell, Nebraska. So we get home and Janae's recovering from a stomach surgery so she can barely stand up on her own. We have a newborn baby and I'm packing our house to move to come here. And it was stress upon stress upon stress. And now, our story may be a little bit dramatic, but I can tell you this, I will never forget it. (laughs) I will never forget what that was like. And the amount of work and strain and intensity and exhaustion involved in that week was absolutely unreal. All of it was worth it, though, as each day we get to celebrate the beautiful gift of life that has taken over the lower third of our home. And, And it's wonderful because there was worth in the striving because of the reward that followed. Now, over the last few months here, Janae and I have been interviewing students that want to be part of our student leadership team in our youth ministry. And in that, we've been asking them some questions. And one of these questions has revealed something to to me about modern Christianity that uh, is interesting. And, And the question was this, how do you feel you're doing spiritually right now? Now, it didn't matter if their answer was, I'm doing great, or I feel like I'm just doing horrible. Their answer didn't matter. What, what was interesting was this, uh, no matter what their answer was, the way they measured their spiritual health was the same. They used these methods, Bible reading, prayer, and church attendance. These are the three things that they used to measure it. And they were thinking, if I'm being consistent in these Christian disciplines, uh, that I'm doing well, or at least that's what they've been taught. And I think that most of us, that's how we see it as well. If I'm consistent in my spiritual disciplines, I must be doing good spiritually. What I've come to notice, though, is that we tend to tie our spiritual health more to our emotional health than we realize. And when I'm consistent in the disciplines, I feel that I'm doing the right thing. And that affirmation of doing the right thing makes me feel good. And if I feel good, I must be good, right? So we keep on going. And the problem is this. We're doing all these things, but we're not growing closer to God, stronger in our faith, or becoming more spiritually healthy. We're just taking what I like to call a godly multivitamin, thinking... I don't know what's in this. I don't know exactly what it's for, but it'll do something, right? It should keep me healthy. That's what the bottle says, right? And so that's what we do is we take this and think this is going to fix it. Now, Bible reading, church attending, and prayer are not bad things at all. We are called to spend time in the word, to be constantly in prayer. The benefits of these disciplines are exponential, but not necessarily in the way we think. What do I mean by that? Well, simply this. Reading the Bible, going to church, and praying consistently is not a fix-all for your faith. We want it to be like an equation where you take church attendance plus Bible reading and multiply it by prayer, and it equals spiritually healthy, right? That's what we want, but it doesn't work that way. And unless we begin to look beyond this self-help mentality of Christian living, uh, we will never, ever begin to realize the joy in life that is truly found in a life lived for Christ. So if these things don't get us closer to God, then what does? Well, the answer is really simple. You ready? The answer is this. Bible reading, spending time in fellowship with the body and with God, and and prayer. Are you confused yet? Because you should be. See, the, the problem is not what we're doing. It's the why behind it. And most of you may be going, isn't the why behind it that we would be closer to God? Sort of. There's a problem, though. Uh, The church over the last several decades has done a great disservice to the people that attend. We have taught an unclear doctrine because honestly many pastors uh, over the years, including myself, have failed to understand what it truly means to draw near to God. And instead of taking time to wrestle this through, instead of taking time to learn and to grow and to figure out something that is a harder teaching than we want it to be, 
we have come up with clever, simple, catchy ideas that sound good and are easy to preach, teach, and for people to accept. The weakness uh, in this is that these things are much more like spiritual tofu than the meat that we're seeking out. And this weakness in teaching has led to three major mistakes in our understanding of what it means to be closer to God. And I want to share those with you today. The first mistake is this. It's the idea that being closer to God is equal to feeling good. How many times have you ever heard someone say this? Um, I feel so much better now that I'm closer to God. I, I really worked on my relationship with God and we feel, I feel like I'm closer to him and now everything feels good. Have you ever heard anybody say anything like that? I hear it all the time from people and it's not necessarily a wrong statement, but it is a confusing one. Why it's confusing is, is because when we look at scripture, we see that being closer to God did not often mean a nice, wonderful good feeling life. And I'm not saying you can't feel good and be close to God. What I'm saying is that in the modern church, we have made those things one and the same. And it's a lie. It's not true. And so I want to give a few examples from scripture to show you what I mean. So first, we're going to dive back into the Old Testament to the story of Noah. We're going to look at Genesis chapter six, verse nine here to see the description that God has for Noah so that you can understand what kind of a man this was. In Genesis 6, 9, it says this. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on the earth at the time, and he walked in close fellowship with God. Noah walked in close fellowship with God, the only righteous, blameless person on earth. This man truly knew what it was like to be close to God. If God himself is describing you as close to him, you have got something right. Noah must feel incredible, right? His life must be amazing. But what's interesting is in the entire account of Noah's life, we never once see that he was happy. In the entire account of his life, we never see it say that Noah found great pleasure in life because of his close relationship with God. In fact, when you look through the story and realize what all was happening, it's easy to see that Noah was very likely not a happy man by today's standards. Uh, The entire world had turned against God except for him. He's completely alone in his faith. That's not a great feeling. God one day says to him, hey, I'm going to destroy all the living things on the planet. That is not the news you want to get first thing Tuesday morning. It doesn't make you feel good freaking him out. Then after that, he obediently builds this ark. God brings all these animals and takes the animals, his family and him and puts them on the ark and they're stuck on there for 12 and a half months, 12 and a half months on this ark. Most of us can't make it 20 minutes in the car with our family before something blows up. They're on there for 12 and a half months. I want you to imagine the stress and the fear and the struggle involved in their situation. You may be looking and saying, well, after that 12 and a half months, they step off the ark and it was this relieving thing. Maybe the fresh air was for a moment until you start seeing the death and destruction around you, until Noah's realizing day after day, we are the only people on the planet right now. It's not, not the conditions for happy living that we would think of, Right? We don't see this description of Noah feeling super happy or feeling really good just because of his close relationship with God. He was close to God, but it didn't mean he felt good. So let's, let's move on. What about Paul? We, we know that this guy is, is a man that God opened door after door for. He used him to impact the known world of his time in extraordinary ways and is continuing to use him today to impact even us. And he was close to God. God literally spoke to him multiple times and spoke through him to give us much of the New Testament that we have. And in the midst of this incredible journey with God, Paul was attacked, chased, hunted, arrested, beaten, shipwrecked three times, bitten by a snake, tormented by Satan, imprisoned, stoned, Do I need to keep going? Thank you. (laughs) It's sad to stop, but think about that. None of those things sound like a wonderful thing. None of them sound like something you would feel really good in the midst of. It doesn't sound great at all. This is a man who is close to God. If one of those things happened to you in your lifetime, you would probably dwell on that, not happy about it for a long time. And it's over and over and over again for him. I don't even need to get into the story of Job, another man described very similarly as, as Noah. I don't have to bring up David, a man after God's own heart. We know their stories. 
We know that they were close to God, and yet it did not mean they felt good even very often in the midst of what was going on. That's the first mistake that we've made, and it's one we have to battle. But we're going to move on to the second mistake. The second one is this, that we can fake it till we make it. It's this uh, idea of, have you ever found yourself in the middle uh, of, of a worship song? You're at church and you're singing passionately loud, but you're thinking about other things. You know the song well enough that you can just power on through, but you're kind of going, what time does the game start today? What, did we start the crock pot last night? Or, hmm, I wonder what we're going to eat for lunch. <laughs> but you're singing the song out, right? For some of you, maybe you hear a song that brings back memories and you start reminiscing instead of worshiping. For some of you, it's, it's more about this outward appearance. You're like, I don't care what song it is. I just have to have my hands up or else it's not worship. So if I do this, this will get it there, right? Uh, for others, it's more like this. Uh, this song, this is not what I would have picked. I don't mind the chorus, but my goodness, the verses are just cheesy. And that melody line, ugh, so predictable. Wait a second, why is she singing this so loudly? I saw her Facebook yesterday. She doesn't believe a word of what she's singing right now. Oh, oh, here comes the bridge. Hands up. Right? Maybe that seems a little out there for some of you, but some of you are going, oh, no. <laughs> here's, here's what's crazy is maybe it's, not, maybe it's not the singing. Maybe it's the idea of, like, taking notes during the sermon. You've looked and you've seen someone who you're like, this person really uh, seems strong in their faith and they take notes, so I'm going to take notes because that's, that's got to be what's making them strong in their faith. So I do it. That's what good Christians do. And, and I love working with teenagers because teenagers, um, they will see someone living something out and they look and if they admire that person or they see that that person has something that they want, they will not necessarily and not often go and ask that person, well, what did you do to get there? They will mimic that person from a distance. And so teenagers are really fun because if you take notes, guess what's going to happen in a few weeks? They'll start taking notes. Because if they look at you and go, wow, you seem to have something uh, that's, that's like, you're, you seem to be strong in your faith, it must be because of this, because this is not what I'm doing. And they start doing that. Now, it's not only teenagers. I think we all do that. I think maybe there's somebody you've identified in your life that you're like, man, they really seem spiritually strong. And you start mimicking them instead of going and saying, so what did you do? How, how do you continue to grow in this? We just go, well, that's what good Christians do, so I'm just going to do it. We go through the motions of these things. Maybe it's not taking notes. Maybe it's more like you, you know your group is going to be praying at the end of life group, and you're like, okay, so when we get to that point and this person's praying, i got to get in three yes, Lords, in the middle of their prayer to make it real. When this person prays, i got to go, mm, at least five times in the middle of it, right? Otherwise, it's not real. Or otherwise, it's not, people won't know how spiritually deep I am. <laughs> okay, maybe the planning ahead is a little ridiculous, but the truth is we do these things. We do these things uh, with this intent, hoping that the illusion over time is enough to fool God into thinking that we're doing great. And the problem is this, we are the ones being fooled because what eventually happens is we start to believe that this is what it looks like to be a good Christian, to live the Christian life, is this idea of just going through the motions of what good Christians do. The last mistake that we're going to talk about Today is this one. It's the idea that being close to God is the same as being a good person. Somewhere along the line, the church adopted a movement full of good intentions, powered by good works, and yet plagued with a simple deception. If you were to walk around the streets today and ask people, what did Jesus teach? You would hear answers something like this. Well, Jesus taught us to love people and accept people for who they are. That's what he taught. And that's what we need to be doing. Now, some of you are looking and saying, well, isn't that, isn't that right? Didn't he teach us to love and accept people? Sort of. Uh, did Jesus call us to love? Absolutely. Did he call us to accept others? Did he show us in his life that he accepted others? Absolutely. But here's where the interesting part comes in. Our definition of love and acceptance is extraordinarily different from his. I'll show you. Jesus was loving the people that he was speaking to in John chapter 8 when he was explaining to them that they had been living as children of the devil instead of children of God. That's not the most loving statement that we can think of, right? Hey, you're, you're a child of the devil, otherwise you'd understand what I was saying. <laughs> Yet he was speaking this in love, speaking this truth with the desire that they would come out of their false belief. And he's speaking this in love. When was the last time you loved so, someone so much that you came to them and said, hey, I want you to know that you are bound for hell. 
When was the last time you loved someone so much that you came to them and said, the way that you're living is leading to destruction and pain and suffering? You see, we don't have the same definition of of love as Jesus does. Our definition of love and acceptance kind of get tied together. Jesus, he shows his beautiful acceptance to any that repent and turn to him. But our idea of loving acceptance is more like this. Well, don't offend them. Keep your mouth shut because some truths people just don't want to hear. And so we just don't say that to each his own, right? We let them decide what they want to do. And and if they need to change, they just need to see something different in our life. So we need to choose to live a certain way. But don't open your mouth about it. That's offensive. See, Jesus, he offended the people in John chapter 8. They weren't happy. They didn't respond well to what he said. And yet, he didn't stop after that statement. He continued because his love for them was what was motivating and driving what he did. His desire to see them come out of it. So, we have to understand the difference. And we have mixed up the great commission with something I like to call the great confirmation. Jesus said, go and make disciples, and somehow we heard, go and make good people. And because of this attitude of conforming to the world's model for utopian living, rather than Jesus' truth that brings new life, we believe that every good work we do is making God more and more proud of us, making him love us more and drawing us closer to him. This is the, the third mistake that we've made, is that idea that being a good person is synonymous with being close to God. These mistakes have been detrimental to the faith of the church over the last several years. But what's interesting is how simple these things are to overcome with truth. No, being close to God does not mean feeling good all the time. But it can mean this. It it does mean having peace in the midst of chaotic situations. Finding joy when others would see no reason to continue on. and, And having a hope that does not fade when the things of the world fall and fail. Faking it doesn't work, yet realizing that we've been just going through the motions allows us to repent and return to the relationship with God that is real and full through Christ. Being a good person doesn't make you closer to God, but we are called to care for, to love, to accept, to encourage, to serve, and to reach out to others through our good works, which show our faith to the world around us and open up opportunities where we get to give an answer, give a defense for the hope that is seen in us. These mistakes have led us to what I like to call the labor pains of Christian living. And and sadly, our pains are way more often the result of useless striving in pursuit of something that God has already done the work to achieve for us. For some of you in here, you believe that, that uh, that God counts your religious living towards your salvation. You believe that he sees how devoted and passionate and consistent and intense you have been for him and that he's going to use those things kind of as some kind of magic eraser to remove the stain of sin that has separated you from him. I want to remind you of what we read together during our time of praise. Uh, We read from Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. It says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you cannot take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. It's not about how good you can be. It's not about your religious living. It's not about how intense or passionate or consistent you are. None of those things matter when it comes to your salvation. In fact, these verses point out something, that all of those things have to be set aside. When I come to to Jesus and say, save me, It's not, hey, look, I've done this much of the work. If you can just do the rest, that's not what it is. It's coming and saying, nothing's mattered. Nothing's helped. Nothing's worked. It's only you. And that's what we have to come to that point. Now, others of you uh, believe that striving is just the way of the Christian life. This idea of just how it is. If you want to be closer to God, you got to work at it. So we strive and we labor and we push and we grasp. And what are we left with? Oftentimes, a sad confusion as to why nothing seems to be working. As I said earlier, we want this self-help math-like equation that's going to draw us in, but there's no such thing. We find that you can do all of the right things and still feel very distant from God. I cannot tell you how many times I've had these conversations with people who go, I have read my Bible every day this month. I've been praying so much more, and it doesn't feel like anything's getting better. Why is it not working? Why is it not fixing this? So what is the answer then? The answer is actually really simple. Stop. 
Stop striving to earn. Stop reading and praying like it's a prescription for spiritual health. Stop singing songs as if they're this mantra that's going to move you beyond emotion if you just get to the right level of thinking. You have to understand something about that emotion without devotion becomes nothing more than commotion. And we have to stop seeking these Christian feel goods from our serving and giving and thinking that every warm fuzzy that comes after is God patting us on the back. God calls us to be cheerful givers. That means there's a joy driving the giving and serving, not not a joy following the giving and serving. We have to stop working so hard and realize what Jesus said to the people in John chapter 6 when they asked him, what do we need to do in order to do the work that God requires of us? What does he want from us is what they asked him. And here's what Jesus said in John chapter 6 verse 29. Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. It can't be that simple, can it? It can't be just that God just wants from us faith in Jesus. There's no way that that's it, right? And yet, what did Jesus just say? The only work that God wants from you is this. Believe in the one he has sent. So what does that look like then? It's having faith in Jesus. And in faith, I read God's word no longer trying to fix our relationship, but seeking to know him more through the beautiful letter that he has revealed himself to me through. In faith, I pray no longer focused on how often or how long I'm praying, but instead, with thanksgiving, I boldly approach his throne of grace. I make my requests known to him. I praise him for his provision, and I plead with him in intercession on behalf of my friends and family who do not know Christ. In faith, I obey his command to love God and to love others, no longer with these selfish intentions of what it's going to earn me in God's eyes, but simply Because he has loved me in ways that I could never deserve. In Paul's letter to the Colossians, he wrote out God's desires for Christians in a way that I believe shows us exactly what we've been talking about this whole time. So if you have your Bible and want to open up to the book of Colossians chapter 3, we're going to read this whole chapter. Because I think it lays it out in a wonderful way. And there is nothing that I can say that would be better than what God has already laid out here. So we are going to look... And and read this together. So Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world, but now is the time to get rid of anger and rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on the new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowances for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Let the message about Christ and all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to those who belong to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Children, always obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not aggravate your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear of the Lord. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ. But if you do what is wrong, you will be paid back for the wrong you have done for God has no favorites. 
Some of you hear that and you go, didn't you just give us a list of things of work that we need to do beyond just believe, just have faith in Jesus? Doesn't this section completely contradict what you just said? The truth is, no, it doesn't. And here's why. Here's what it said. Set your sights on the things of heaven where Christ is seated. Put your faith's focus on him. I love in the middle of that section how it brings up, hey, it doesn't matter if you are Jew or Gentile, slave or free. None of that matters. It says Christ is all that matters. Make him the focus, not all of these extra things. He is the focus. So focus your faith on him and then live it out. That's all it said. Focus your faith on him and live it out. So here's, here's the thing. What does it mean to live out our faith? We have to understand that just having faith in Jesus is important, but faith without action is dead. It's not real. It's not there. So there are actions and steps that we take in our faith, but it is different than actions and and steps that we take to make our faith stronger or better or to, to connect us closer to God. We need to understand we are to walk in faith, not try to fix faith. How we grow in our faith is by walking in it. You know what's amazing? Over this last month here, uh, actually month and a half, we've seen some incredible things happen in our student ministry program. The kids came back from Lead the Cause on fire, and they have taken off with this idea of reaching this valley with the gospel. And one of the most incredible things that God has done is we have seen 46 people in the last seven weeks come to Christ. 46 people. It's incredible. And I love what God is doing in that, but what I've noticed in that moment is I've gotten to see these people when they put their faith in Christ, and, and you know what? I've never noticed someone who seems closer to God than them in that moment, in that time. You know why? Because this side of heaven, if I have put my faith in Christ, there is no closer to God that I can be this side of heaven. If I put my faith in Jesus, the Spirit of God has indwelt me and is with me. As I gather together with other believers in his name, he is here with us. I can't separate myself from him and hide. I can't walk away from him. He is with me. I can't get closer to him. The problem is I've forgotten what it is to be in the relationship that he's already in with me. So I try, I try to work to fix things instead of just resting in the fact that he has already done the work to bring me in. He has already done everything that it takes to draw me close to him. I don't have to do all of this labor to get there. In fact, I'm supposed to be still. When I find myself in times that I've been striving and working and and trying to earn, I need to stop and I need to be still and remember who he is and what he has done. To remember that it's not my works that draw me closer to him, it's the fact that he came close to me when I didn't deserve it. And he's never left me. Now, there are some of you maybe sitting in here who who are going, you know what? You're talking about faith in Jesus. You're talking about these things. And I don't, I, I understand kind of what you're saying, but I don't really understand what it means to have faith in Jesus. I want you to picture yourself standing at the top of a cliff. You're standing up there and, and you're going to rappel down. And what you have to do when you're going to rappel is you have a rope tied to the harness here in front of you and you lean back on it, right? Now, if you do not lean back far enough and you start going, you end up bouncing off the side of this cliff over and over again. You'll flip upside down. You'll hit your head. You'll get scrapes and bruises. The only way to do this right is to lean back so far that if the rope were to break, there is nothing to stop you from falling. That's faith. That's true faith. And what we need to do with Jesus is understand that if I'm going to put my faith in him to save me, it means that I have one rope, him, that I'm putting all the weight of what it takes to save me on. And I'm trusting that there is nothing else required. Nothing else required. I don't need to add other tethers. I don't need to do any of this because the moment I do that, I'm not trusting in him, am I? I'm trusting in what I've done and just hoping that he can maybe do the rest. But I don't really need him because my other tethers hold me, right? It's trusting fully and wholly in him alone. Nothing else. Leaning back and knowing I've got to commit to this and that's it. Knowing that if he were to fail, there was nothing. And what's amazing is that he doesn't fail. 
And so if you're in here today and you're going, you know what, I've never put my faith in Jesus as the one and only way for me to be saved, I want to invite you to do that today. We're going to take a moment here. I'm going to have the worship team come back up and we're going to take a moment here as we close to just reflect. For those of you that are sitting here going, I've never put my faith in Jesus, take this time to go before God and to say, God, I am ready to trust in Jesus and him alone. God, I am putting my full faith in Jesus as the one and only way for me to be saved. There is nothing else, God. I'm putting aside all of my works that I've been trying to earn salvation with. And I'm trusting in the work that Jesus has done on my behalf. I'm trusting in his death, paying for my sins and his resurrection where God, I can see that he has the power to give me new life. If you are ready to put your faith in Jesus, take this opportunity to do that during this time. If you have already put your faith in Jesus and you're sitting here going, what do I do? We're gonna take a moment here to be still, to reflect. Some of you are looking and saying, I feel like I I don't know how to walk in faith because I just don't know what what the next step is. I, I promise you this, that if you have put your faith in Jesus, God has shown you what the next step is. Maybe you ignored it. Maybe you never stopped to hear it. And so we're gonna take time to be still and to hear from God and to say, God, what is it that you've called me to do that I've been being disobedient in? Why is it, God, that I feel like I'm just striving and working and doing all these things that are good things? I should be spending time in your word. I should be spending time in prayer. I should be fellowshipping with the body and with you together. But God, all of these things are feeling like they're falling short. Well, it's because we're, we're doing the Christian life, but we are not living in faith. And it's time to come back to faith. And so take this time to be still and let God speak. Take this time to realize where you've been striving and trying to do this work to fix things. And put those things aside, repent of those things, and come back to God. Come back to this desire to be with Him because of His desire to be with you. Come back to the relationship that He has never left, that He has always been in since you put your faith in Jesus. Come back to walking in that. And we start that by being still now and taking time to hear from God. I'm going to pray And then let's take some time with God. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity, God, to grow, to hear and to understand. God, I just pray if there's anyone in here who has not put their faith in you through Jesus, God, would you draw them to your heart today? God, we know you are the only one who can save. And so, God, we plead with you. We intercede on their behalf, God, asking that you would draw them in, that, God, you would speak to them that, God, you would show them that you are the one and only way that through Jesus they can be saved no matter what they have done. And, God, for those of us that have already put our faith in you, God, help us to be still. Speak to our hearts. Speak what is true. Search us and know us, God, and make the ways in us that need corrected known to us. And, God, help us to repent and to come back out of this attitude of going through the motions And back to a real relationship with you, God, wanting nothing else but to know you. God, we praise you for your word and just ask, God, that you would speak to us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
We want to grow in our relationship with you. And out of a thriving relationship with you, we just want to live out our faith. We just want you. Amen. Church, you are dismissed. We can stay and pray.